Hello, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Sarer Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student in politics and international studies here at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Matt Mahmoudi, and I'm a PhD student at the Center of Development Studies, and we're your hosts for this season of Declarations, the human rights podcast. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them, the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today, we are talking about the weaponization of human rights. Are human rights always good? Or have they changed from the days in which they paved the way for the movements around the globe, from the civil rights struggle to the movement to end apartheid? Joining us today from New York City to answer some of these questions, we're thrilled to be hosting Chase Madar. Chase describes himself as a recovered civil rights lawyer and is the author behind The Passion of Chelsea Manning, the story behind the WikiLeaks whistleblower. Chase writes for the London Review of Books, Le Monde Diplomatique, American Conservative, which I can explain, I've been wondering about that. Jacobin and the Times Literary Supplement. He's also an adjunct member of faculty at NYU Gallatin. Chase, thank you so much for joining us today. Lovely to be here with the five of you. Chase, I'm wondering about your thoughts on on RTP and the whole idea of embedding humanitarian intervention into international law being deadly. You speak to this in some of your articles, and I'm just I'm just really curious to hear your spiel on that. Well, my long answer, it's a terrible idea to Im- embed R2P in, into international law and to formalize it. And I think R2P is generally a terrible idea. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a wonderful idea. What's wrong with protecting people? Shouldn't we all have a responsibility to protect the vulnerable, uh, the weak, the people who are being slaughtered or at grave risk? I mean, so what could possibly go wrong? I mean, if the intentions are good, uh, you know, how could that, you know, create problems? Well, we've, we've seen, in fact, very clearly over the past 20 years, what can happen when there's a, a very undisciplined use of military force in the name of human rights. Uh, we saw that in the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, which many of the grandees of the human rights industry convinced themselves was a, a wonderful uh, piece of human rights activism you know, via military force. Not everyone in the human rights movement, I don't want to, you know, condemn too much, but Michael Ignatieff, for instance, one of the leading impresarios of uh, human rights in the 80s, uh, you know, disciple of Isaiah Berlin, was a uh, 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 you know, leading backer of the Iraq invasion, thinking that this would be a godsend for human rights of the people of Iraq. The consequences have been absolutely catastrophic for people in Iraq and in Syria and in the region. You know, even you know, catastrophic for the soul, for the nations that were foolish enough, uh, and and I think you know, evil enough in some ways to to launch this invasion. Uh, look at Libya. Uh, very few lessons had been learned from Iraq, but. Uh, you know, the UN got together and Human Rights Watch, for instance, pushed for, you know, a UN resolution to authorize force. Harold Coe, a leading human rights scholar in the United States and is a former dean of Yale Law School, a kind of unofficial pope of the American bar, uh, and, and who had done great, you know, publication work on, on the limits on executive use of military force as Obama's top lawyer in the State Department turned completely around and pushed for authorizing military force there. And what we have now in Libya is violent chaos, competing militias, uh, diminished uh, living standards and a number of things, the revival of slave markets. You know, I wish this was some lurid exaggeration, but it's been very well and thoroughly documented and reported. And, and suddenly the people like the inescapable Bernard-Henri Lévy, who pushed for uh, military intervention, or as I like to call it, war uh, against Gaddafi uh, in the name of human rights and freedom. Well, they've moved on to other things. Uh, uh, They've moved on. And, uh, And I think the grandees of the human rights movement, you know, who are well integrated into, you know, 
the establishment, for lack of a better term, the Samantha Powers, the Bernardo Levies, they never end up picking the tab. It's always the people on the ground. And it takes more than good intentions to do anything good. You know, that's true on the individual level. That's true on the level of nation states making war on other nation states, too. Uh, and good intentions and, and legal codification aren't enough. I think R2P is just something that, you know, even though the art intentions are good, you know, uh, it's just simply not enough. Uh, and when the consequences have been so dire, and there has to be a real appreciation of the consequences of war, which is something that's been left out of so much of the military thinking. Uh, and I don't want to scapegoat the human rights industry for these wars because there are many other actors at work and it's not like you can blame the Iraq war on Mike Ignatieff, you know, uh, but they have played a vital role in providing a fig leaf. Uh, I think one of the reasons why many in the human rights industry have made their peace with war is a misplaced faith in the power of international humanitarian law. And, you know, to listeners who may not know this term, international humanitarian law is the euphemism for the laws of armed conflict that determine or purport to guide how a war is fought. And many in the human rights industry uh, and lawyers in general tend to see international humanitarian law as a powerful restraint on the use of violence, something that can uh, sterilize war, that can turn the use of deadly military force into a kind of surgical instrument, mm -hmm. that you can have this magic war without war crimes, war without tears. Uh, uh, and But that's not really uh, how things work. And I think even though sometimes the laws of armed conflict do function as a break or a restraint, just as often they function as a lubricant, uh, as an authorization, as a license for military force, as a liability shield for military force. Uh, and, you know, that's not just the, the point of view of an edgy contrarian podcast guest you have here. That's something that's you know widely known inside the military and among military lawyers. I refer everyone to look at Charlie Dunlap's uh, very influential essay on lawfare, from 2001, at the end of 2001, I don't agree with all of it, but there's he's very candid. And Charlie Dunlap, he's not a member of the uh, critical legal studies movement. He's a retired uh, U.S. Air Force major general who's you know had a career working in choosing targets and in all other facets of military law. But he writes about how law is in fact very necessary in authorizing soldiers, pilots, bombardiers to pull the trigger to push the button, to drop the bomb, because, you know, this may be surprising or not, most psychologically healthy young men, you know, who are soldiers, most soldiers, uh, are reluctant to use deadly force on another human being, even in the thick of war. That's something that, you know, has been assessed time and time again. And But getting the express permission from a lawyer, and lawyers are integrated in the kill chain, in the chain of command, makes it okay. Uh, so here you have both law operating as a fig leaf in terms of, oh, well, it's for human rights, and, but also acting as a intrinsic part of the chain of command uh, that's you know, organizing and optimizing the, and facilitating the use of deadly force, not simply acting as a check. Uh, and it's funny, I mean, the only other group, aside from liberal legalists, who uh, place so much power in, in, in the laws of war as some kind of magic restraint are right-wing nationalists, who typically, you know, when there's a military and humanitarian cat catastrophe, so like the U.S. and Southeast Asia, or the U.S. and Iraq, you know, they don't blame the war itself. They don't blame the strategy, you know, because otherwise you wouldn't be a right-wing nationalist. You have to blame something else for the failure. You have to scapegoat something else. In the case of Vietnam, you had people blaming the adversarial media, uh, the hippies and the anti-war process. The actor Jane Fonda is kind of a folk devil for in the re popular revanchist discourse in the United States about Vietnam because Jane Fonda was against the war and visited North Vietnam. Uh, and you don't have any of those things anymore. You know, not, we don't have a... Uh, Hanoi Jane. Yeah, Hanoi Jane, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, we don't have Hanoi Jane anymore. We don't have, we did not have a robust anti-war movement about Iraq in the United States anyway. 
but you have to blame something. So the laws of war are blamed. Like, oh, our boys had to fight with one hand behind their back as if, you know, are these perfidious lawyers, humanitarian lawyers and NGO intellectuals were, you know, ruined it. Otherwise, we would have won. I mean, of course, this is nonsense. Uh, that's not really how law is functioning and working. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, you know, another kind of in inflation of the actual power uh, to restrain violence. I'd like to hear, Jeet, from a scale of 1 to 10, how pessimistic are you feeling right now? <laughs> Probably 25. And of course, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, big fan of um, a lot of the stuff that Chase says and writes about. And, but I followed international law throughout my undergrad in India, and I came to Cambridge hoping to find the answer to how international law and the laws of armed conflict could possibly have some sort of a meaning in, in global politics and how it could regulate some of the you know, really bad atrocities that happened both during war, but also probably prevent war itself. But I haven't found an answer in the two months in the first term here. And um, watching Chase's videos makes me even more pessimistic about the possibilities of me ever finding an answer. Oh, right. So, <laughs> so uh, this this year is just, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But My so, work is done. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Chase, I mean, my, my question is, is there any point to having this construct known as international law in the space of armed conflict. Like I, I take an entire course, I will write an exam in April called On the Laws of Armed Conflict, both the uh, use in bellow or the humanitarian law, which is the law that regulates war, but also the use ad bellum, which is when you can go to warfare. So both those are the two broad elements of armed conflict. And those are things that I'll have to learn for the exam. So what's the what, what's the point of all of this? Is there any is there any point at all? Or should we just say, okay, no point of Article 51 of the UN Charter and Geneva Conventions, let's just try and completely come up with some alternate constructive for regulating this sort of atrocity? Yeah, thank you for that that excellent question, and this might lighten the mood a little bit. I th I think there is a point uh, to international humanitarian law, and even to the USAID Bellum or just war discourse, even though I think both are you know degraded like everything else in the natural world. But here here's what I think the real issue is: uh, the our war discourse uh, at the you know popular level and it's certainly at the elite opinion level in the United States and you know but you decide in, in your home countries you know how much is judicialized to a fault in excess where I, I think there's a role for law talk and war talk but in the US our talk of war very quickly turns into talk of law and we lose sight of the most fundamental first order issues the morality the consequences the politics, the interests, and I think these are fundamental. Let me give an example. I opened the New York Review of Books, you know, nice publication. There's a, an article by David Cole about drone strikes. Important thing, okay? And it's a long article. It's, you know, he's their guy who writes about drone strikes uh, for the New York Review of Books. He's a law, former law professor at Georgetown, now legal director at the ACLU. Well, this article about drone strikes, about 70% of it is law talk about the need for more legal procedure. Is that really the issue? Does that really capture uh, you know, the most important part of uh, Washington's drone assassination program? It captures something, but I don't think it's the only thing. So it, you know, and there's 30% of this long article that's about things like consequences, strategy, morality, uh, security, new security risks that are created, both to the people in, say, uh, Pakistan or Somalia or the United States, where there is, a, I think, drone strikes are clear, net security liability even for the United States, given that we've had two very serious terror attempts where the perpetrator, you know, fortunately apprehended before any damage could be done, candidly told the court, yeah, I did what I did because I'm angry about drone strikes and where I'm from. And yet we don't dare to connect those wires. Uh, so I, what I think our, our war talk in the United States has a place for talk of law, but I think it's you know, a secondary issue. I think it should only be maybe 20% of our war talk. And uh, so I'm not dismissing it. And I think you know, international humanitarian law has a role if international humanitarian lawyers are developing and can get standards enforced in a way where they lessen civilian casualties. Well, good. Any lawyer who can say, yeah, I helped save the lives of, you know, 100 people, that's great. But let's not lose sight of what's fundamental. I think it's very odd that in the criticism of, say, Operation Cast Lead, Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip in 2008, 2009, 
that suddenly turned into a very a, a mostly sterile discussion of the laws of armed conflict. You know whether or not is the Israeli defense forces and uh, uh, Hamas adhered to you know legal norms. Well, what if uh, the IDF had adhered completely strictly to the the, the standards and had killed you know let's say twenty percent fewer civilians? Are we all happy now? Is this a good war? Is it clean? Is it nice? I, I mean, I think absolutely not to answer that question. I hope the answer is obvious. You know, the fundamental issue is, you know, you said Bellum questions or why this war? Why isn't there a political deal? Uh, and who are the parties involved preventing a political deal there? So to criticize that, uh, you know, assault on Gaza solely from the perspective of the laws of, of use and bellow of international humanitarian law to me is just utterly distorted. Uh, and, you know, there are many reasons why in the United States war talk has turned into law talk so easily. Uh, we don't have mass conscription in anymore. We don't even have a draft and since Richard Nixon got rid of it in 1973. So you know, the opinion making classes in the law schools, you know, elite media, uh, the NGOs, government, business, you know, it's their kids are not at a serious risk of being sent to kill or to die in Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq. I mean, it's just utterly abstract. And without that visceral immediacy or even the threat of that visceral, you know, cost that your household will have to pay, it becomes kind of a legal discussion. Uh, and with drone assassination, it becomes even more one degree removed because there's no physical risk to the drone pilots done by remote control. So it becomes just a matter of law and whether the, the kills are clean. I mean, some people talk about this as Yusin Bello devouring, you said Bellum, jib eating jab, where you know, the whole question of whether or not the United States should be inserting itself by making it war on Somalia uh, you know, is is just left out completely. And instead, there's a sterile discussion of, well, how, how narrow are the rules of engagement for drones and for any special forces we send in? How narrow, how tight are, are the, you know, adherence to IHL? And, you know, that's, that's absolutely wrong. I mean, it's fundamental to ask, why is this war good in the first place? Is this self-defense by any reasonable, rigorous definition? I think clearly not. So again, I, I think there's a place for IHL, and it, in a way it's not even the, the fault of rights-based groups, uh, uh, legal groups, that they're, you know, they, they can only play their position. If, if uh, you know, a football team can't score a goal, it's not the goalie's fault, you know, you know they're just playing their position. Uh, and in the absence of a robust anti-war movement that, you know, or, or in any moral sense, we're left with this rather sterile legal discussion. Now, now, one thing I do fault these rights-based humanitarian groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, occasionally less so, uh, for is they've gotten, they've acquiesced without even knowing it, I think, to the very militarized foreign policy. And although it's the official policy, I've been told, of Human Rights Watch is, oh, we don't weigh in on you said Bellum. That's, you know, because we want to be neutral observers and, you know, our neutrality and credibility are at stake. So we don't weigh in on whether it's right or not to go to war. Uh, we're just going to monitor both sides adherence to IHL, uh, international humanitarian law. Uh, but in fact, Human Rights Watch has gotten very sloppy and very trigger happy. And I think it's just appalling. I think it's a disgrace. I think it's long time ago that Ken Roth resigned over this uh, and there was a real cleanup, house cleaning there. Uh, for instance, you know, an enthusiastic backing of the UN measure for to, to use military force in Libya. Uh, uh, another U, uh, Human Rights Watch researcher after that called for the same type of decisive ac decisive action to be brought to bear in Cote d'Ivoire. You know, really, that's what we need. Uh, Amnesty International uh, a few years ago took out giant bus advertisements for their national meeting in Chicago to support. Uh, the war in Afghanistan to keep it going. I mean, I find this appalling. I, when did the human rights movement, something that started out to, to free prisoners of conscience, turn into a PR industry for a counterinsurgency war? I mean, that is just, not, and it's very much, I have to say, to Amnesty International USA's credit that they ousted that leader, Suzanne Nossel, 
but I mean, it's just bizarre. Suzanne Nossel, uh, a former Amnesty International leader, you don't expect someone like that to be faulting Obama a few years ago, President Barack Obama, for not being confrontational enough uh, with Moscow over what was going on in Ukraine. I mean, are human rights watch people supposed to like peace and supposed to want to ratchet down tensions between two nuclear powers rather than uh, why are you saying military forces off the table? I mean, this is just bizarre. And I think that the human rights industry needs a radical rethinking with real consequences for people, uh, uh, you know, for its grandees, you know, who have just uncritically acquiesced and in fact really lubricated and worked hard to provide PR for, for war. What's your two cents on that? Sir? Oh, I have so many. I have 25 cents, but <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> so, yes, I, I think everything, there are two things that I'm really interested in picking out here. Um, so uh, I suck, so I pulled up my dissertation from last year. Because, uh, so basically, uh, I did an MPhil here last year, and what I was considering was um, how an international community, quote unquote, comes to be that... Uh, that uses force in the name of humanity. Um, and I specifically traced that through uh, the early interventions in Somalia, the UNITAF, UNISOM 1, and UNISOM 2 interventions in the early 90s um, to kind of understand how those interventions were kind of a formative moment in the formation of this idea of an international community that uh, was intervening on behalf of humanity. I want to read your dissertation. <laughs> I, maybe you don't, I promise. But. Um, like there's so there's two things that uh, really resonated with me with what you just said. The first is language. So the the question of this sanitizing language, this question of intervention as opposed to the language of war, um, and how that language then goes to facilitate um, the second move, which is how law that itself becomes implicated in this kind of depoliticizing move. Um, so that politics does not become the subject of the question of intervention and even normative considerations like whether ju uh, war war in this case or humanitarian intervention um, is justified or useful or even like in this particular international power system is it right? Th those questions are assumed to exist. Those questions are assumed to have been answered but then the, it so the the question of concern becomes this kind of technocratic, bureaucratic language of how exactly procedurally this should this should uh, occur and exactly what utility the intervention will have or not have. But the question of what exactly uh, whether intervention in a specific space, what kind of me historical memories it calls up um, of the use of brute force, um, those things go on un unexamined, and I th I think. Th that's really interesting. And the other thing I'd like to ask you about is you use this phrase human rights industry, um, which I think is a really interesting phrase. And I, I would like to hear where you come down on that. To paraphrase Disraeli, human rights is a career. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it, it, that's not such a bad thing necessarily. I mean, any good idea, you know, if it gets institutionalized, well, you know, that's a good thing. Don't we, we want good ideas to, you know, take over and take root in, in solid institutional form. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, some kind of mystic who thinks that, you know, and, and we should all want power for good ideas. So, but it, it is an industry and it is a career. And I think it's a career for lawyers mostly. And, uh, and often elite lawyers, you know, from fancy schools, and it, it often fails to reality test. I mean, in sometimes very grotesque ways. I'm thinking about last year, last autumn, there was a referendum in Colombia uh, put up to a popular vote, the approval or not of a peace deal between the federal government there and FARC rebels uh, who had been fighting a bloody civil war in different regions of Colombia for decades. And, uh, you know, I, I'll show you my cards. I think that a peace between the FARC rebels and the government is a very good thing. You know, don't we like peace? But Human Rights Watch and its local representative and your head of South America, Jose Luis Vivanco, uh, you know, condemned the peace deal on the grounds that, well, there was too much impunity both for FARC rebels and for the right-wing paramilitary forces who had their own string of humanitarian abuses. And there was some impunity. Sure, there was. Absolutely. On the other hand, it stopped 
the war. Okay, there's that detail. Uh, and so, you know, Human Rights Watch was condemning and criticizing, urging people not to vote, to vote no on this peace deal. Is that really what human rights ideology is about? The movement is supposed to be about preventing the end of civil conflicts? Now, I, I and, and in the end, you know, what happened was that the peace uh, bill was voted against in a very narrow way, which surprised lots of people. And Human Rights Watch is absolutely at fault and responsible, uh, partially responsible for that defeat. Very narrow, you know, we've had a lot of ugly surprises like that in the past few years, haven't we? Uh, but, you know, from the point of view of Human Rights Watch and their Ivy League and Oxbridge trained lawyers on the 32nd floor of the Empire State Building in Manhattan looking down at this from far away, oh, well, this didn't meet our high legal standards, our standards of legal rigor, too much impunity. It's funny that people in the regions most affected by this, you know, nasty civil war, those regions voted overwhelmingly for the peace deal. And yeah, you bet they better you better believe they knew that there would be impunity, but they wanted to end the war. Who's paying the price there uh, of, of not? I mean, so this is a clear case of human rights law being really dirty and much dirtier and nastier than politics. You know, political deals are necessary for peace and, and they're always a bit dirty. And, you know, it, the adult thing for Human Rights Watch would to say to say would have been, yeah, you have to vote for this. We need peace. Only with peace can we. There, we're, that we're not going to have respect for human rights if the civil war continues. And you know, we hope that we can later on uh, bring people to justice for the war crimes they've committed, just like we've seen happen in Chile and Argentina and other Latin American countries, you know, which you can do later and push for that. But no, it was just this horrible doctrine and thing. And of course, it's not Ken Roth or Vivanco who are picking up the tab for that. It's the people of Colombia. I mean, they figured out a way to get out of it, but that did real damage to the peace deal there. Uh, so yeah, human rights industry. So I want to move to the questions that you have mentioned and Sarah has mentioned that are kind of getting lost when we get into these like very technical ways of talking about it. So in your opinion, do you think there ever is justified room for intervention or can there be a war that's morally good if we're not going into the legal technicalities, but actually thinking about the moral grounds? I think war is always an evil and even the best war produces evils. And that has, That's something that should be age-old folk wisdom, and I think other generations have known that. I think even when wars are necessary, and sometimes they are, I'm not you know, here to espouse a categorical you know, pacifism, you know, whether atheist or you know, any other spiritual, but even the necessary wars are tragic necessities and produce a great number of evils. And that there's been a reckless lack of, above all, a lack of any discipline in U.S. foreign policy, and the lack of foresight, the lack of a sense of consequences of using lethal force. So, I mean, let me give you an example. I, it, it's so easy, an example, but it's a real example, so it's fair game. And it's, you know, I think the U.S. was right to fight World War II. I mean, first Japan declared war, and then Nazi Germany a few days later declared war in the U.S. And the U.S., of course, was right to fight that war. But even that good war produced so many evils and civilian casualties produced you know, by American force, you know, not just in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but in using more conventional weapons, you know, destroying cities, you know, even in the taking of France. And you know, people forget that. It wasn't, I mean, so yeah, war is always ugly, I think, and it's exhilarating and fun, and for some people it's the best thing that ever happened to them. I mean, that's, that's the real truth too. Uh, but I, I'm not here to espouse a categorical pacifism. Uh, and it's funny, I, you know, sometimes people react to my articles. I gave a talk at Yale Law School two years ago, and man, the kids there, it was like I was trying to take their candy away from them. I mean, I also criticized Harold Coe, their former dean, and <laughs> the Les Majeste. Oh my God, they flipped out. He's coming here next semester. Yeah. Well, good. I, I, you know, I'd be happy to, you know, talk with you or put you in touch with some of the students at NYU Law, which I'm proud to say is my alma mater, because when he was a visiting scholar there for a semester, uh, some kids really raised some hell there. 
And I don't love every student protest, but I really loved this one. <laughs> I really love, and and they were right. They were they had a, a strong message, and it wasn't done. I have to say that annoying language of oh, we feel unsafe, or it's not a safe. No, they said no. Look, uh, we, there's limited budget for teaching human rights here. We want someone who you know has a, a real robust vision of human rights. Being the guy who lubricates drone assassinations and provides the human rights window dressing, that's an abomination. That's a kind of uh, real degradation of what we think human rights should be. And they push that in a, in a wonderfully clear coach. And they got a lot of good press in surprising places. Even The Economist, you know, not a left-wing rag, you know, wrote pretty favorably about them. Uh, so we'll be in touch. It's actually interesting, Chase, and you mentioned this one of our earlier episodes, we were talking about times in which humans band together around the idea of humanity and around the idea of the welfare state and around the idea of, of caring about everyone. And our, our former guest mentioned that, unfortunately, during the post-war era, like these are the times in which people band together and in which they care about never again. And so it, it becomes like sort of like a vicious, perverse cycle in which we don't want a war to happen because there's always nefarious consequences. But without the war, there seems to be a sort of a complete form of dementia around service provision, around the inalienable nature of all human beings, no matter what sort of ethnicity or background that they're from, the, the role of the state in, in all of this. Absolutely. There is a, a great deal of forgetting. And I, I think, strangely enough, I, I think one of the reasons why the U.S. is so trigger happy is because so few people... Uh, actually fight the wars now. And I'm very open to the idea of mandatory military service. And I think the only way out of this overly militarized foreign policy is through, meaning people actually having to face war and what it actually means. And I think one of the reasons why the, the U.S. military is held in much higher esteem today than it was a few generations ago is because so few people have served in it. Compared to, you know, during World War II, you know, the great majority of young men, you know, between the age of 18 and 25 were in the military and went through it. And they knew that military organization was good for some things. Military institutions were good at something and really bad at others. Uh, you guys ever seen the movie From Here to Eternity? Classic Hollywood. It's got this iconic scene of Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr making out, rolling around in the surf in Hawaii. It's a really good movie, and it won Academy Awards. It's got Frank Sinatra in it, Montgomery Clift's in it. Uh, I love old Hollywood. Yeah. Okay, so, but, Declaration's <laughs> movie party, anyone? <laughs> yeah, but this movie could not be made today. And even though this was an utterly mainstream movie that was, you know, critics loved it, and you did Bafola box office. Uh, you know, it's very critical of the military as, as an institution, as a way of life. That there's the, the anti-individualism, the frustration of, of people, uh, the racism and the bullying in it. That it, they, you know, shows is just kind of inherent in, in military life. And you could do that then if you tried to make that movie now. There would be a lot of freaking out. You know, Fox TV, even, you know, the the wannabe tough guys at CNN would be like, oh, it's just very. How could you desecrate the military with that? But there's, you can't make fun of the military anymore because people don't know it. And, uh, and I think that's a shame. So I'm open to the idea of mandatory military service in a way to spread the burden, to spread the costs of war. I mean, this is true both on a, a global, national, and, and within the United States still, that the United States has this incredible surplus of security. And even though there's constant fear-mongering and threat inflation, that are a big part of American politics, there's an absurd surfite of security in the United States where we are bounded by giant oceans on either side and weak neighbors to north and south, you know, or militarily weak. I mean, I love Canada and I love Mexico, I'd but there, there's, there's just, there's no existential threat to the United States, but there's just constant ratcheting up, oh, uh, ISIS is an existential threat. ISIS is very nasty, make no mistake, and, and they could be a threat in some small ways, but they're not even close to an existential, or even a major threat. Uh, or Iran, I mean, that's just not, that's just the worst kind of threat inflation. So when the US does something like, or in London and Paris do things like, you know, lead a war to decapitate the the Libyan government, and it sows chaos. Well, no one here is, is really picking up the tab. 
are paying it the cost. And in the United States, just within the United States, you have a very small percentage of the population that's volunteering to serve in wars, and it's their households that are paying the costs. And uh, and you know, even in, during the Iraq and Afghan wars, there was a tax cut, which is almost unheard of in human history. Traditionally, taxes are increased to pay for wars. Wars are expensive. But you know, with deficit spending, this was just you know passed on to future generations, and the the you know the financial cost of that war was horrible. I mean, and I say that not to be a whiner. The people paid the worst cost are the people of Iraq. But you know, don't we Americans have any you know financial? What happened to the angry taxpayers? You know, uh, so uh, yeah, uh, I I think that you know the only way out is through. And, and I really wish that more people who worked in the humanitarian sphere, whether in human rights law, international humanitarian law specialists, law of war specialists, uh, were more conversant and knowledgeable of military history and military science. Not that you become an absolute expert on it, but at least get your hands dirty with it and, and be able to talk that talk and learn that discourse. Uh, and I can see why liberal and God knows radical people are a bit averse to this. Military history has a bad reputation, deservedly, as just being a bunch of really bad dad books, you know, that dad reads on the beach thinking, oh, yeah, if only we had done it this way, you know, and <laughs> the D-Day would have been, oh, we really get oh, the Battle of Bulge, you know, there's this kind of vicarious without any critical spirit. And there's a ton of bad military history, often by amateur military historians, where you're like, oh my God. But there's a lot of really great military history. And I find it, you know, it's counterintuitive to me that even as some human rights grandees like Samantha Power and Harold Coe have cheered on things like counterinsurgency warfare and drone strikes, some of the most critical voices in the U.S. come from the military intelligentsia. I think of two really great books that I'd like to recommend that are just the most withering critiques of counterinsurgency war, both in specific instances and in general. One is published by Cambridge University Press. I saw it on the shelf by Douglas Porch, just retired from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He's an expert on French military history, but it's a withering critique, just scorching of counterinsurgency wars, whether it's the French in Algeria or the U.S. in Vietnam or the U.S. in Afghanistan or the British in, in you know, Northern Ireland. Uh, so I highly recommend this book, Counterinsurgency by Douglas Porch, and another one that's shorter and more concentrated by a retired U.S. Army colonel named John Gentile, uh, G-E-N-T-I-L-E, John spelled G-I-A-N. Uh, this is a guy who led a tank battalion in the invasion of Iraq, uh, but he's a very good military historian, formerly taught at West Point, and it's another just scorching polemic against counterinsurgency. Uh, and how is it that these are the people condemning American wars where you know, Michael Ignatieff and, you know, Samantha Power and, you know, Sarah Sewell, another former director of the Carr Center for Human Rights, who, you know, participated in the counterinsurgency manual of the U.S. Army and Marine Corps to make sure it has human rights language in it. You know, what the hell does that mean? Uh, but these people, the, the many in the human rights industry have acquiesced to that and, and you know, they love to be a team player. And, and again, I don't, I'm polemicizing a bit here myself, not, of course, not everyone in the human rights world supports these wars. Many people don't. Probably most people don't. But many of the elites in this industry uh, have just uncritically, and they think they're the ones influencing the military. I think it's the other way around. Um, since 2001, uh, there's been the emergence of this set of practices known collectively as uh, the global war on terror. Um, and that's obviously something which has interacted very directly with this idea of the weaponization of human rights. And you've talked about Iraq and Afghanistan more recently. You talked about the co-authorization or justification of drone strikes. Um, but I think it raises questions because it can also function as an alternative to the liberal interventionist paradigm, right? You can justify, and increasingly we have seen, the justification of military action, not with reference to humanitarian aims, but rather with reference to the construction of 
a diffuse kind of abstract global enemy um, and the creative interpretation of things like the war powers resolution things like the 2001 AUMF so that now it means uh, in the US context particularly the government essentially perceives itself as entitled to to carry out war anywhere and against anyone at any time and because everyone's al-Qaeda right everyone is al-Qaeda right um that's the way things the work. Morons love monoliths. Exactly. And, you know, everything's Al Qaeda. Yeah. Exactly. We've seen that with com- you know with everything's international communism. And yeah. Everything's a street gang. You know, <laughs> domestically in the US too. Um, but what I'm curious about, I guess, is whether you view those two paradigms, liberal interventionism versus kind of securitization, war on terror, as in the future particularly are they mutually reinforcing or are, is one the alternative to the other so do you think we're still going to see liberal interventionism tacked on or do you think maybe that was a specific historical moment when people thought that was a good idea and in future we might see military operations justified more with reference to kind of security and the sidelining of liberal interventionism well the real alternative that i'd like to see i mean really to both you know, a war on terror and liberal interventionism is to look at it as a criminal matter. And I think that's the best approach. And, you know, it has its own liabilities. And I don't think it's right. And I think you need to do a lot of diplomacy to preventively diffuse possible terror threats or acts of, you know, cruelty and, and mass slaughter in the world. But I think looking at, at terrorism is a problem for criminal law. I'm not a true believer in international criminal law. I see that as a kind of white collar, you know, Santeria or voodoo for the most part. You know, I think it's great. I've got friends who write stuff about the, you know, uh, the, the ICC and all that, but uh, write critically about it anyway. But I, I think looking just, you know, national uh, criminal justice enforcement collaborating to stop this on a local level, you know, with respect for civil liberties. Uh, but you know, and sadly, and I take you know American security very seriously. By the way, uh, and as someone who was in New York on September 11, 2000, the worst day of my life by far, uh, I have to tell you, I don't need to be reminded by anyone about what the costs are. Uh, but this is much better looked at as a matter of criminal law, criminal justice, and treating terrorists not as warriors but as criminals. That cuts them down to size. And I think it would be a much more efficient way to deal with this. I mean, just look at one of the absurdities of the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Bay is that every prisoner there would have been much more speedily adjudicated in a civil court, a federal court. And there's t- it's not like there's a lack of evidence to, to you know, convict people. Uh, but because we need to treat them as warriors to feed this weird kind of culture wars psychology of many nationalists in America, uh, including, you know, not just on the Republican side, that you they're in this infinite limbo and being by these other these expensive and not and very dysfunctional tri- tribunals when the terrorist suspects who've been prosecuted as criminals using federal criminal law. Well, the, the system has worked fine. And it's not like they've gotten off, and it's not like they have superpowers that they're going to escape from prison. I mean, that's just childlike and stupid to think that. And I wish more in, in the American political class would put that childlike foolishness behind them. It's long past time, if you're listening. Human rights is invoked in order to justify non-human rights-based interventions, um, as opposed to saying that the intervention itself emerges from some of the uh, core conceits of like liberal interventionism. Um, so do you think that bellicosity is something that is buried in like the human rights discourse itself? Or do you think it's just a convenient tool that's kind of used to mask and cover and to justify? Uh, you know, I think that's a great question. I, I look at this and I come at this as a vulgar journalist and lawyer, not as a legal philosopher. So for that reason, I tend to think this is more sociological, political than something inherent in the dogma inherent in the doctrine of human rights law. I I don't think human rights law and institutions within their proper sphere, and raising my eyebrows, right, are are inherently bad. They do a great. I mean, I'm full disclosure. I'm married to the human rights industry. My wife's a human rights lawyer at the American Civil Liberties Union. It does great work, uh, but I I think human rights as politics is utterly insufficient. I mean, there's a famous essay by Marcel Gaucher about that. Human rights is not 
of politics. And as Samuel Moyne, my fellow traveler, you know, has been writing lately, human rights standards have set like a bare minimum for human survival, not, you know, what we want to see for lessening inequality, for human flourishing and dignity. Uh, so human rights, they have their role, but there's a, been a way, been an amorphous expansion of, oh, everything's human rights. Well, no, not really. The human rights toolkit is very good for some things. I mean, I think for traditional negative rights, essentially, and yes, there's a, you know, negative rights and positive rights are linked. It's not all so simple, but I, I just find it, there needs to be a return to just a grown up sense of politics mm -hmm. and the politics of war. And I think the human rights industry has utterly failed there. Mm -hmm. It's elites, it's grandees are just, are vain enough to think they're the ones influencing Washington and, you know, London and Paris and those military efforts when it's just the exact opposite. Uh, and I, I say this not to dismiss the human rights world, because I think, again, a lot of human rights institutions and lawyers and people research are doing really great work. Just in the U.S., Human Rights Watch, you know, I've been dragging cheerfully through the mud, has issued great reports on, in the U.S., uh, the refusal and reluctance of the Washington, D.C. police force to investigate rape. I mean, that's horrible. And that's good that the big report came out or the revival of debt prisons and the criminalization of not being able to pay your rent in housing courts in Arkansas, where it's suddenly considered a felony theft of services. Uh, that's just obscene, and that's good reporting. And you know, I, I think in the American context anyway, very few Americans care about human rights law. We care about rights, and we talk about them incessantly related to our own national constitution. But you know, what, what Human Rights Watch is doing in the U.S. anyway is just doing good long-form journalism, exposing things, and I think that's great. I, I, human rights is just not sufficient, though. And I, it's funny, I mean, Matthew and I were talking about if you tell a tax lawyer that, hey, you know, tax law, it's great, it's essential for civilization, you know, we need it, and it's very political, uh, but it's not everything, uh, the tax lawyer would be like, yeah, no kidding. But say that to a human rights lawyer, and I think they could take offense. Like, no, everything's human rights. Isn't everything human rights? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, you know, it, it, only if there's a sense of the limits of this sphere, I think, can the human rights toolkit and industry play an important and you know, beneficial part of our common life. And there's nothing, again, I'm not saying that everything has its limits. Uh, Let's recognize that. And I think the human rights law really, more than limits, it's just been doing some horrible things in the sphere of war and being a lubricant for war. And they need to just absolutely cut it out. In that very conversation, I also mentioned this book that I've come across by, by Hornberger on, on policing and, uh, and human rights and how the, the human rights discourse has very much moved in, in South Africa from being one that provided with opportunities to protest the apartheid regime to one that is being appropriated by the police to literally say, I have a right in, in order to ensure you all's right mm -hmm. to arrest you and to prevent dissent and to prevent protest. And so I think that, again, is a very clear limit to human rights that we have to be very aware of and very cognizant of. You've written a book, of course, about the case of Chelsea Manning, and you've written various other articles about her case as well. Um, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden are both examples of people trying to open up the state to scrutiny, um, trying to cast light on the practices of the state in some of the examples that we've already talked about, uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, and security practice more generally. Uh, and in both cases, they've been sort of shut down, uh, punished, delegitimized, using the kind of trump card of national security, you know, the, the interest of the security state. Um, it would just be great to hear your thoughts on that, I guess, as a device and as a practice. I, I think both Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden are heroes who have sacrificed so much for the world, and in particular for their countries, which is my country, the United States. I think they're you know, patriots, and I think what they've done is you know, good for all humanity. And I want to say specifically that whatever security liabilities that have resulted from their leaks are absolutely minimal and have been exaggerated in a kind of wild panic from our national security elites and complicit politicians who thrive on fear-mongering and just grotesque threat inflation. Uh, 
I, I, I'm proud to have participated from early on in the movement to liberate Chelsea Manning and to change people's heads that these leaks about two disastrous wars are things we need to know about, that we need to look at. And the idea that we're somehow safer if we have no idea what our government is doing is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, think about it. If you're, you want as much information as possible if you're going to make a major life choice, like buying a new car, renting a, a flat or apartment. Well, guess what? That's also true about whether or not to invade a foreign sovereign nation. Uh, and I think it's just a, a really cruel and nasty coda to the Iraq war, that this war that was launched under cover of government secrecy, lies, and distortion ended, although it really didn't end, and <laughs> it's still going on, uh, but with the persecution of someone, a young soldier who volunteered to fight there and you know, brought the truth out. And as if, you know, there, I think there's even a bit of scapegoating going on, mm-hmm. as if Chelsea Manning is responsible for things that went wrong for uh, American soldiers for four and a half. It's absolutely ludicrous. It's unfair. Uh, and I, I, I'm so happy that Chelsea Manning is free. I, uh, I think that Manning deserved a full pardon, which in a way that acknowledges that the prosecution was wrong. But hey, a commutation is not bad either. And I'm glad Obama did that. Uh, I'm not a Obama 100 percenter, but credit where it's due. And Edward Edward Snowden, you know, continues to be a, an articulate spokesman. Why on earth would you want to build the infrastructure for totalitarian surveillance in your own country? Why on earth? And none of the supporters of that nonsense at the NSA have been able to show what are the the great things they've accomplished with this. What are the the horrible terror attacks they've stopped? All they've been able to show is, uh, oh, we. We caught a, a Somali-American cab driver in San Diego tried to wire $8,500 to a group which may or may not be connected to uh, al-Shabaab. Well, that's why you're building, you know, that's a threat to the United States, first of all. That's why you're building, a, you know, an enormous surveillance center in Bluffdale, Utah. And that's why you're developing the ability to monitor every single person. I mean, so all the whistleblowers who have stood in the way, whether it's Thomas Drake uh, and, and, and many others, uh, I think, or, or Jessalyn Radak, uh, we need these people. These are heroes. And this is something that was not fully appreciated in a Democratic Party administration. I think many American liberals are reluctant to criticize a Democrat for this kind of thing. If there had been a Republican uh, who had been cracking down on whistleblowers like Obama did, then there would have been a lot, the, a lot more hell being raised. Now that we have a different president, I think people are suddenly going to wake up to the value of leaks. And leaks are complicated. I'm not going to say they're always good. Leaks are always political and they have a political point and vector and charge to them. I don't love everything WikiLeaks does. I, I don't love everything Julian Assange has done. Uh, but I, we have a, a, a president now in the United States, I think, with very with deservedly little legitimacy and who should be seen as illegitimate got less vote than his main competitor. And that would have been an even wider margin, but for uh, felon disenfranchisement in the United States, legalized voter suppression uh, on racist grounds frequently that's been legalized thanks to a very racist Supreme Court decision by John Roberts uh, as chief justice. Uh, And, you know, I think the leaks that we're seeing from the Trump administration are a sign of political health because it's a way it's like antibodies rejecting something that is illegitimate. Uh, Legal, mind you, Trump's election was absolutely legal, but illegitimate. In your article for Counterpunch, you say human rights nonprofits will never be any substitute for an explicitly anti-imperialist political force. What would be? Political movement. And, you know, anti-imperialist politics, anti-war politics, republics respecting each other. What's wrong with that? Uh, We need more of that. It's a hard sell. It's tough in the United States just because foreign countries are sort of abstract. If you're Dutch or even British, you're very close to other foreign countries. You know, you just a hop, skip away. In the United States, you could drive your car for a long time before you leave the United States. And... uh, and I, and I think that just that geopolitical fact makes it difficult for Americans for us to be you know, more tuned into their other nations in the world, you know, with who have aspirations and who aren't a threat to us, even though they're different from us in ways. 
And, and I would just like to see more peace and mutual respect and diplomacy. Not every conflict, international conflict, should be seen as war or should be viewed through the, 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 the war paradigm. Uh, and, you know, many, most conflicts can be solved through diplomacy. Neither side gets everything they want, but hey, it's better than war. That ethic has just been lost in, in, among American elites, and it's disgraceful. And you see that especially among the people who should know better, the Ken Roths, the Samantha Powers, the Harold Coes, uh, the Michael Pose. I mean, so many people. And uh, we need a revival of that uh, among our human rights uh, practitioners and the elites just starting there. Are human rights always good? Uh, I, I mean, I think human rights are always instrumentalized and very often for good, but sometimes for ill. I think it's a good thing to recognize that maybe human rights don't exist as platonic entities by themselves, un unsullied by human hands. Uh, law does not exist in itself. It's always as something that's being used in a practical sense uh, and always, you know, with an agenda behind it. And that's fine. You know, I, law is not inherently clean. And it's not always dirty either. In politics, which is often seen as dirty to say something's political or politicized, often as a pejorative term. Well, politics can be, produce very nice outcomes. It's like we're we're you're condemned to politics, but politics can also be our conditional salvation, and and law too. Uh, I just want to. You know, I write this in a way to pull the mask off and dispel this notion that anything with a human rights fig leaf on it is is automatically good. Because as we've seen, you know, in, in many wars, it can be a bit of a disaster or not a bit, but a horrendous disaster. So uh, the one last question, which we've all been waiting to ask you before that, just a quick comment on like a 30 second comment on what uh, Chase was saying about Edward Snowden and uh, um, his and Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and their sort of impacts not only in USA but also in the entire world. Um, so in India, for example, we had a recent judgment that recognized the right to privacy as a fundamental right. That the way judicial discourse was going in India, that would have probably taken 10 or 15 more years had there not been this sort of public rising in support of whistleblower such as Edward Snowden. So the fact that he did this in some sort of a way had spillover in, in far off India. And I think that the fact that these people are doing this is, I mean, empowering people all across the globe in many ways. But now to the most important question of this evening. Um, why American conservative? No. <laughs> You know, I, I started writing for this magazine in 2009. Uh, the first thing I wrote for them was a, an unflattering profile of Samantha Power and her political trajectory. And uh, it was a, an article that I was going to publish in Counterpunch, a left-wing site. But I think, huh, you know, I'd actually like to get paid for it. <laughs> Am I I'm unreasonable that way? I like to get paid for my work. I bet you like to eat three square meals every day. Okay, yeah. Look at look at me. You know, I'm in an, some kind of Marxist Leninist who wants to get paid for his work. And Counterpunch does not pay. So I approached American conservative who I you know publish very good things on foreign policy from a very moral realist lens. And I say that because realism is often unfairly maligned. International relations realism is being, oh, it's amoral. Well, I don't think so. I think, I think that discussion of power politics has an inherent morality to it. If I mean, it, it can have that, not necessarily, but if you have eyes to see and know how to read it, you know. It's and I'll point out that even while Michael Ignatieff was, you know, banging his drum for the Iraq invasion uh, in the name of human rights, along with Tony Blair and some American liberal hawks too, leading realist political scientists in the academy took out their own money to put an ad in the New York Times to say, no, stop, this is a bad idea. Saddam Hussein's not a nice guy, but his Iraq is not a threat. Uh, what threat there is can easily be contained. This war is a mistake. That is the moral position. It's the difference between moralizing and morality. Do we really think Tony Blair uses the language of morality? Does that make him moral? Mm -hmm. I think there's only one answer to that question. Yeah. 
Uh, and so the the American Conservative magazine, I generally don't agree with them on domestic issues, although I've been writing a, for them about criminal justice issues where they're, you know, truly believe in limited government rather than mass incarceration. Uh, but they publish a lot of good moral realism. And I'm always happy to work with people towards common goals. I think, you know, we should all do that to, to a large degree. And, you know, the, the only way we're going to build a, a more Pacific uh, world order and a Pacific foreign policies in the great military powers is by being willing to engage with people, you know, that we have common goals with, but may be from different political tribes. And so I'm, I'm very proud of the work I've done for the American conservative. I particularly recommend the blog Unomia by someone named Daniel Larison there, who's one of the foremost and incisive critics of American foreign policy. And that is it. We're all out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chase. Thank you all. It's been wonderful talking it's with you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please go to facebook.com slash declarationspodcast to see more about our upcoming episodes and our past episodes. You can also find us on Twitter at our Twitter handle, declarationspod. Please check us out and leave a rating on iTunes. Search for Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. See you next week.